welcome everybody to another episode of Out of Curiosity, where we are seeking biblical clarity for modern questions. He got it. Ah, <laughs> he got the, it. And the crowd goes wild. He's, you started with an with an all right, like you were Matthew McConaughey. That was a little bit different, but uh, we're not allowed to. There's a first word we have to say. We can't say all right when well, we begin. We never have. So yeah, but I like that. Yeah, maybe that'll be your new thing. <laughs> Now that you've mastered the tagline, I feel I feel really good. I feel confident. You're gonna go tell Susanna when you get home. I've, I'm tweeting right <laughs> you now. You won't believe about, what I did today. <laughs> <laughs> so sad. And yet we've still derailed the first We're already two minutes in, of yeah. the podcast. We're really sorry. <laughs> Your time is valuable. We're so sorry. Well. I'm Cameron. I'm joined by my good friend Garland. I am uh, on the West Coast out here in Portland, Oregon. He is in the lovely Fayetteville, Arkansas. Uh, and the internet is allowing us to have this conversation in real time. So thanks. Uh, who was it? The thanks, Al Gore. Al, Al Gore. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it was Al Gore. <laughs> As we, we call him the father of the internet in our household. Um, so... <laughs> Anyway, um, the question, I'm sure you saw it when you clicked this podcast, what translation of the Bible should I use? This can be a hot one. People, people can get really aggressive about this, and, and some of that's unfounded, and some of it can be a little silly, uh, but it's also really important to know what you've got in your hand when you have a Bible translation. I, I, obviously, everyone knows um, the Bible didn't come down to us in this current form in a nice crossway, leather-bound yeah, yeah, uh, ESV. English <laughs> translation. Yeah, the Bible was written for Americans in English. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. These are ancient texts, some of which, I mean, they just have complicated histories. But uh, by the time we've got the, the canonical forms, they are uh, in, they're in Hebrew and they are in Greek, the Old and New Testaments. Um, and now we've, most of us, interact with the Bible in English. And so um, understanding what is in your hand when you have an English Bible is really important. But why this conversation, Garland? What you were the one that was kind of motivated to do this. What put this on your on your radar right now? Well, first of all, I mean, you know, I get asked it a lot, and so um, you know, in the South and the Bible Belt, you know, it's kind of that is kind of a modern question. What which translation should I use? Obviously, if you're a skeptic or you've you know you kind of have paid attention to this podcast because you uh, appreciate thinking through more, uh, you know, questions that outsiders might ask. This might be um, not up your alley, and that's okay. Um, when, when it comes to some of these issues, the stakes can get rather high. Um, I think sometimes people's um, insistence on this topic can get a little bit silly. Um, I had a person one time, this was years ago, uh, I was waiting um, to get my, I had, used to have a motorcycle and I was waiting for it to get repaired at this place. And I didn't have a way to get out of there. And I ran into a guy and, uh, he had a revival, a particular revival, revivalists shirt on. And, uh, we got to talk and I, I couldn't go anywhere. And so, um, and he ended up talking to me for about two hours and I was kind of ready to be done with the conversation, uh, after about 58 seconds. Um, and very early in that conversation, he told me, uh, uh, he kind of found out that that I worked at a church, and um, that kind of got him revved up. And uh, he started telling me that uh, I wasn't fully saved, and here's why I wasn't saved, and here's the reason, I, the things I needed to do to get saved. And then, in the course of this two-hour blasting of why I wasn't saved, at one point he gave me a percentage. He said I was thirty percent saved, um, and I was like. I mean, not, not 32. Like, I would really prefer to be, you got a nice round number on that answer. So the guy, uh, it was not a pleasant experience, but one, one of the things <laughs> he told me was, he said, what translation of the Bible you use? 
And I said, uh, ah, you know, I have a NIV and I sometimes read NASB. And he said, wrong, not saved. He goes, that knocks, he actually, everything he responded to, he would say, like it knocked me down several percentages. So like, okay, I'm down now. And he said, you have to get the King James 1611. Uh, that was what he kept saying. You have to have the I've heard, one I've heard that. translated, the original. And he said he just got one. Um, they're really expensive, you know. Um, and any other translation of the Bible is inaccurate. Um, and so you may have come across somebody like that. Maybe you came out of a church tradition. Maybe you've deconstructed from a church tra tradition. And language like that was used a lot. You must use the King James or you must use the blank translation. I think where it really gets... Uh, can really become troubling is people say words like this all the time, language like this all the time. Well, we we use the literal interpretation uh, of Scripture. We or we translate that literally, not like those people do, or that translation does. Um, and so, you know, when we talk about interpreting Scripture and what does the Scripture teach, uh, sometimes the stakes can get really, really high. Um, uh, what does this passage mean? What does it say? Oftentimes one of the issues is going to be translation. And so um, while at first it may seem like kind of an intramural discussion between maybe even Bible Belt Christians who have the luxury of lots of translations, it is, uh, it is a really important question. How does translation work? And so without diving into lots of the weeds on translation, which we might get into a little bit, um, my first answer is really simple. Okay, which translation should I use? If you're a Jesus follower out there, okay, let me give you just a simple, overly pragmatic answer. Uh, whichever one you use, okay? Like, whichever one you use and whichever one you understand. Um, I like that. When, like, I, uh, there are, we're gonna talk about translation theory in a minute, um, but there's a Bible that might be understandable and appropriate to give my nine-year-old daughter that I might not sit down and study or you and I may not use as we work through maybe a, a real tough issue on this podcast. And that's okay. Um, I think the first simple answer is just whichever one uh, you'll use. Um, and so I think when we talk about English translations, at least, we do have, we have the luxury, we have to just acknowledge it, that we actually have many translations of the Bible into English. And there are many people groups in the world that do not have that luxury um, if they have the Bible translated into their language at all. And so uh, the first thing is just appreciate that. And man, just read the Bible. <laughs> just take, if, if, even if you're skeptical, just read the Bible and dive in and see what it says. Um, the second thing by way of just getting our arms around this question is something like this. Um, when you do translation, and in a minute we'll talk about uh, many of us had to learn Spanish, especially down here in the South, uh, uh, if you kind of learned it in school. Um, when you do translation, like right off the bat, when you try to learn another language, I think we recognize that it's a lot harder than we think. Um, it's not quite as easy as we think. And that gets even more difficult when we talk about ancient languages that no one has spoken for literally hundreds of years. Uh, yeah. this, these are languages that were birthed out of a very different culture than the modern Western one. They use different grammar. They have different alphabets, especially the case with Hebrew, different uh, grammatical conventions, different social and cultural issues, different ideas, different worldviews, different everything. Even to say, like, obviously, Hebrew and Greek are languages that are spoken today, but that ancient Hebrew is incredibly different from, right, from modern right. Hebrew that's spoken yeah. around the world. And Koine Greek, the Greek of the New Testament, is very, very different. I mean, yeah. just a very yeah. specialized vocabulary and even totally. the, way, the way the grammar works. And so, yeah, it, even that is very yeah, different. To, to make matters even more difficult, the Bible, much there are many parts of the Bible that have very technical 
uh, words and language that isn't necessarily used in common everyday speak. Uh, words about sacrifices and priests and temples and legal code. So you're when you read, say, some of some parts of your Old Testament, say Leviticus or Deuteronomy or Exodus, part of what you're reading is ancient Hebrew Eastern law code that centers on sacrifices. And we just, I think, oftentimes, as you said, fail to appreciate that and almost get, we never, we, we know it's not true, but we, we can almost get fooled into thinking that the Bible dropped out of the sky in English bound, ready for us to take notes in. Um, and, and uh, you know, that's that we need to get over that and do and recognize that anytime we talk about translation, it requires work. And here's to prove the point. Let me ask you to literally translate. Okay, I'll put you on the spot from your Spanish days. All right, literally oh, no. translate simple Spanish phrase, como te llamas? Uh, like what does it mean? Just, just first blush, what does that mean? Oh, what's your name? Yeah, yeah, yeah. but what is it? What is it literally translated from? Can you okay. remember your Spanish your Spanish work here? Como uh, is what or how or how te uh, you you right. yourself as a reflexive pronoun yourself. Okay, what is llamar? Uh, I your Spanish I is totally flowed. It's totally gone. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's totally gone. gone. So llamar means to call, and the as ending. So llamo would be I call. Llamas would be you. You call. So. The, the literal translation, so if we're going word for word, and you hear this all the time in Bible translation, we use the literal. And right off the bat, I think we're already starting on the wrong foot. Because if I were to literally translate, como te llamas? Just a simple Spanish question. Um, literally, that would mean how yourself you call. How yourself you call. Now, is that what it means, though, in English? Kind of. Kind right? Exactly. Now, kind of. Yeah. Do you see the difficulty? This is yes. the exact issue that we're trying to, to load up for our people. I think oftentimes when this kind of conversation comes up, people say, I want the literal. Or they'll say, Well, and I don't or I want the literal, not the paraphrase, or something like that. And that automatically is starting us off on the wrong foot. We have to recognize that how yourself you call would be a literal quote unquote word for word translation. But that is not a good translation. What would be a good translation? You said it earlier. What would be a good translation? Uh, what's your name? What is your name? Yeah, what is your yeah. name? But notice, we've changed the question word from how to what. Uh, the word name does not actually appear at all in the original Spanish sentence. Uh, the, mm -hmm. the word name is nowhere in there. And we took all the, co the verb concept of uh, call out and we, sub we subtracted it with the word is. Uh, mm -hmm. All of that. And we did it just like that in translation. And we've taken three words to four. I mean, yeah, word, yeah. word order is slightly different. That. Yeah, um, all kinds of mutations. Now, to make matters even more difficult, um, when we just, just using English itself, I'm trying to just help us understand how difficult this is before we talk about translation theory. If I say the word bear to you, let's just talk just English. What does that word literally mean? Bear, first thing that comes to mind. Uh, big animal, big brown, scary animal. <laughs> <laughs> you said that like a like a six year old big animal, yep. big brown big, big animal, animal, scary big brown, animal. Scary animal. Yeah. It's got big teeth, brown, got claws. Scary. Yeah, exactly. Eats okay. salmon. So yeah, gets I, the salmon I, out of the river. My bet would be many people <laughs> listening. This would go if I say the word bear and I say what does it literally mean? You'd go okay, large animal, large carnivorous animal. Uh, but that could be completely different if I say 
I will bear your burden. Now what is it? Uh, it's it's to carry. It's to let someone offload some of their weight onto yeah. you, either literally or emotionally, and notice, metaphorically. It's no longer. It, it's a noun in the first tense. It's in a verb in the second. The first, it's a noun, mm-hmm. an animal. Now it's a verb. I will bear. Future tense. You can also. What if I said it this way? Um, uh, I bear this child. Now, a little old English, obviously, sounding there, but to bear a child is to bring a child into the world. We, usually, we mean childbirth. You could also say, um, I will bear false witness. Mm-hmm. I, bear, I bear this testimony. Now, we're talking about a speech act. All of those are meanings of the word bear, but the literal meaning depends on the context. It depends on... Uh, what is around it? What is the situation? So what I'm trying to do is load up our listeners with when we think about translation theory, uh, all of this comes into play and we need to have the appropriate humility, I think, to say, okay, there's a lot of, there's a lot that goes into this and I, I, I need to appreciate that before I start making dramatic statements like that one's not literal or you shouldn't use that one we can make it even more complicated by talking about how the manuscripts of the Bible, there's no spacing or punctuation. It was all, written in all caps with no lowercase. So how do you punctuate? All that stuff. We could make it uh, more difficult uh, than that. But let's just dive in and think about how do those that work on translations approach it? And I'm going to give us two words, okay? These might be two poles or two camps, okay? And these are the we might say roughly represent all translations and then we're going to give one kind of outlier. One is called the formal equivalence and the other is called the dynamic equivalence approach to translation. Uh, Before diving in, just anything by way of setup before looking at these two approaches that you think would be helpful as you've maybe answered this question uh, in your church. Hmm. No, I, I think we're, we're well on our way. I mean, I, I think starting with pick one, get one that you'll read, um, and we're, we're, we're about to dive into the differences in the translations and their philosophies. Um, but even f- different people might find different translations along those spectrums a little bit easier, that they're just a little bit more grabbable, a little bit more resonant as they're into it. And so I think starting there is wonderful. And then I think what you're about to do in laying out these different philosophies is going to help us understand, like, you know, there are different jobs when we're reading our Bibles. Sometimes we want to sit down and read for long passages. Sometimes we want to get into deep, complex study. And it, I think we can kind of view these different ones as pulling different tools out of the shed. Um, yeah. And so I'm ready for you to, to give us the lay of what those tools are. Let's stick with our Spanish example then. This is the easiest way to make sense of it. Um, formal equivalence seeks to be as word for word as possible with the original language and yet still make good sense in English, okay? That's formal equivalence. And so a good example would be if I have the same Greek word used again and again and again, say it's the word uh, pistis or for faith or something like that, or agape for love, um, we're gonna translate in a formal equivalence we're going to try to use the same word in translation over and over and over again so you can see the repetition. We're going to try to break clauses down as near to the clausal layout in Greek as we can and still make sense of it, okay, in English. So they're seeking for a more word-for-word breakdown than the opposite. So a dynamic equivalence, and and I I said we use our Spanish example, so let's use that. A formal equivalence would be something like What do you call yourself? Notice, we're using the verb, you call. 
Um, we had to switch how to what. We just can't make good sense of English by saying, how do you call yourself? And remember, our, word, our literal word for word is how yourself you call. Um, so what do you call yourself would be a very formal equivalence uh, approach to translating komotayamas. And mm -hmm. that is going to be the convention uh, that is used for the translation committees that are approaching it with a formal equivalence. Here's some examples, and I'll give some initials. The KJV, the King James, uh, the ESV, the English Standard Version, um, the RSV, Revised Standard Version. Um, maybe the most you know, if there's an extreme or a pole on this side, it would definitely be the NASB, the New American Standard Bible. That is a formal equivalence that is desperately trying to be as word for word as possible. Sometimes when you read the NASB, for example, however, it can it can be a little choppy. You can read it and go, it sounds almost like how yourself you call at times. Um, and that's a, a result of their their constraints in using formal equivalence. That's the goal of the translation committee. And this is really nerdy, but so I'm looking at the NASB right now. I have it on my desk. And uh, one cool thing that they do uh, is for words that they've had to insert when there's not, um, there's not an associated, associated word in the original language, in the English, they will italicize it. Mm -hmm. So that if you're reading a sentence and they've inserted a word or a phrase, to make the to make it flow better in English, you can see where they've inserted that, um, and so different translations will use little little tricks and tools like that. And so this is really nerdy. This is probably the nerdiest thing we've ever asked anyone to do on this podcast. <laughs> but if you're if there's a Bible translation that you're really using, it might be worth flipping to those early pages in the front and reading a little bit about their mm -hmm. translation philosophy. And they sometimes say things like that, like, "Hey." Here's why we vitalize these words. Here's why we put these things in footnotes or whatever. So you can go, oh, man, okay, now this is way more usable for me yeah. as a study tool than it would be otherwise. I understand what they're doing here. And this this episode act, might actually just be designed to get you to read those few pages and maybe even <laughs> this simply to just appreciate the work that goes on in this. You know, when I yeah. preach for, when I preach a passage, I try to start with the original language. And, you know, not everybody gets the... Uh, uh, I guess the the blessing of being able to study them, but uh, for those of us that have, I try to start there and then do my own translation, uh, just to get my, sen my my own sense of the passage. And it is always, always very challenging. Like it is not easy. Now, a dynamic equivalent uh, approach would be um, not the opposite. Notice these are not opposites; these are just different approaches. The dynamic equivalence um, would be taking Komotayamas and translating it. What is your name? They're, they're going to be very okay with making the best English sentence in English to make sense of uh, the concept or the idea that we see in the original language. Uh, obviously, they're going to have some places where they're doing some interpretation on that uh, or trying to make sense of a passage. And they'll usually footnote that for you or give that away. Your initials for this side are going to be the NIV, the New International Version. It gets revised about every 10 to 15 years. There's another one coming out, I believe, at the end of this decade, in the early part of 2030s. Mm. The NLT, the New Living Translation, and then uh, one that's near and dear to me just because of what they do is the NET, the NET Bible, the New English Translation. And here's why this one's really helpful. Uh, it's actually published for free online. So you just Google it, Net Bible. And what the Net Bible does is they actually include in every verse their translation notes. They will tell you why they made a decision to translate a certain thing this way, and they actually give you behind the curtain 
why was this difficult? Why did we choose this word? Why did we reorder it? And they'll actually tell you all of that stuff. And in my personal study, that I had a conversation with a woman in our church like two weeks ago about this. She'd never heard of it. And she came back the next week and was like, that is awesome. I didn't even know that tool existed. I'll That's actually cool. start in the, in the NET often when I'm studying my Bible just to see what are the issues here? What did the translators have to wrestle with? Um, so the formal equivalents, how yourself you call, or what do you call yourself? That, that's a fine, that's fine English, but a dynamic's gonna go, yeah, but we wouldn't say it that way. We would say, what's your name? A paraphrase, so this is the, the outlier would be a paraphrase. The best example of this is obviously the message for those of you that are you know, in Christian circles. That is somebody taking, we might say, the general gist of a passage and paraphrasing that into very colloquial English. And it also has its place. I think there are times to sit down and just read a, a translation like Eugene Peterson's The Message just to let it, just kind of hear it in very, very, yeah, you might get a glimpse English. of the passage's heart in a different way. Than right. You, you might struggle to with some of the more formal um, yeah, translations. Yeah. I, I think, too, um, sometimes when you hear, you've already kind of alluded to this, Garland, but when you hear the formal, description of the formal and the description of the dynamic, don't fall into the temptation to think, oh, the dynamic translations, they're just not concerned with accuracy. The reason they, they've philosophically chosen to translate in this way, according to this philosophy, is from the conviction that if we can put it in more colloquial English, the reader will understand what God is trying to communicate through these words better. So, so yeah. it's it's not like oh, we kind of want to tweak it or change it. It's it's a philosophy toward the end of helping you best understand it. And we can debate, you know, which which one is genuinely better. It probably a hundred different people might have a hundred slightly different views on that. But uh, I think that's just yeah. important to say. Just a just an anecdotal, uh, you know, story that I think evidences exactly what you just said. One of my favorite professors I had in seminary, his name was Daryl Bach. He's a professor at uh, kind of a, a, a New Testament expert. He's very well respected. He was on the translation committee for the NLT, the New Living Translation. It's a dynamic equivalence uh, translation, and he told the story, and I went, "Oh my gosh, I." It just made the whole thing so human, and I had a different respect for, for all of these translations. He told the story. He said uh, they were working from Hebrew and Greek, um, and the publishers wanted a translation that was faithful and accurate from the Hebrew and Greek. He said, but they walked in, and on the very first day, they handed us, and I believe it was, it was either seventh or eighth grade, they handed us a bank of words, English words, that it was expected that everybody with at least an eighth grade education would understand these words. And it was only like, a, it was, it was a several hundred words, but not that many words, right? So they are now having to take the Greek and Hebrew and translate it faithfully, but they can only choose words on this page because any wow. other word was gonna be something they did not think that somebody with an eighth grade education could understand. So he used the example. There's a Greek word that shows up in the New Testament frequently. It's in Romans chapter three. The Greek word is hilasterion. Um, it often gets translated as sacrifice or atoning sacrifice or expiation or propitiation or something like that. It's a massive uh, loaded term, both in Jewish understanding and then later in Christian theological understanding. And he tells a story, he goes, how do you translate this? What do you do with this one Greek word, which actually represents a category of sacrifices in an ancient convention, using only yeah. a bank of words that eighth graders can understand? And he said, so you end up putting a 
a lengthy kind of phrase to make sense of that. But that was the constraints that their publishers gave them. And I remember as a young Jesus follower in 10th grade, the NLT was the Bible I used because I could understand it. Um, and I remember getting older going, oh, the NLT, that's, you know, that's, that's not real. That's not, that, that's not a good Bible. That's not, that's not serious. And I heard, you know, years later, I hear this professor say that. And I went, how, how, dare, how dare I say that? Like, that was so mm. arrogant of me. And it gave me just a deeper appreciation for what the translators have to do on these translation committees. And so um, I, maybe just by way of just pastoral advice, uh, skeptic out there or, you know, you're a Jesus follower, my suggestion would be as you study the Bible to have one of each, either on your phone handy, um, if, you, if your Bible that you read and study out of is an NIV, have an NASB pulled up on your phone. And where you see things basically uniform, you could probably uh, rest well seeing most of them have a, there's a, there's general agreement here, where you see a very different translation. That might be a place where you go, let me look into the NET. Let me pull that up on my phone. Just save it on a, you know, save it on one of your bookmarks on your, your browser or something. Just pull the NET up and go, what, what are the, what did their committee tell me about this, this issue? That's a great place to start. Now, I'll be remiss if I don't also say, I think that we do a disservice to Christians in, when we train you to only read the Bible with a pen out looking for, you know, the number of uh, therefores or something. It's called inductive Bible study. Sometimes you just need to take the Bible and read it. Read whole books, whole stories, whole gospels. And man, sometimes the NLT or the NIV, one of those dynamic equivalents, uh, approaches can be so good to just sit down with yep. a cup of coffee and read the read an entire gospel in 45 minutes or the book of Romans or something like that. And so we all need, uh, I think, a well-rounded approach to this. And this was just a primer to get you thinking about that uh, and just to get us to be humble when we talk about them. I think that's the goal of this episode. Yeah, that's exactly what we didn't talk about this beforehand, but I think have a couple of tools for the different jobs something for wide reading, something for deep study, and uh, you'll be set up well. Maybe last thing I would say is I only use the NIV because if it was good enough for the Apostle Paul, it's good enough for me. <laughs> what, a, what a perfect place to end it. So, <laughs> as always, thanks for listening to Out of Curiosity. Thank you for listening to this episode of Out of Curiosity. If you found it helpful, please consider leaving us a review and sharing it with a friend. To suggest a topic, reach out to us on Instagram at OO Curiosity. We'll see you next time.